Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, so much so. And even as just was um, shown to us from uh, Psalm 8, that out of the mouths, mouths of infants and babes, you have ordained praise. Lord Jesus, we thank you that what we encounter in your word, what we store in your heart, not only protects us and brings us life, but it leads us to worship you. And Lord, as we gather together as a community of worshipers, we wish to be shaped uh, irreversibly by your desire for us to who we should be and what sins we should put off and how we might encourage one another to do that. So Lord Jesus, as we seek to submit ourselves to your word in Ephesians 6, we ask that you find our hearts to be willing, our ears to be open, and the Holy Spirit to be active in our midst. We pray this in your name. Amen. So last week we uh, took, began a break from our series in the book of Luke and we started a short seven-week series called Some Assembly Required. And the aim of this series is to do a number of things, but there's primarily two. And the first is, is that actually what we're going to be looking at throughout this series is nothing more than what should typify the Christian life. In other words, this series answers the question of, if grace has so captivated my heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how then should I live? What is a right response to the conversion the gospel brings to me? But secondly, and of distinct importance to us as we've gathered together on this Lord's Day, this Sunday, is that this church, this weekly assembly of believers, is where we get to practice and encourage one another in all of the ways that we should be living throughout the week. This is where we come hungry and weak, and we become become filled and encouraged, full to the brim, so that over the course of the week, we might pour ourselves out, living the kind of Christian life that God has called us to live. Last week, we looked at why we gather, and this week, we find ourselves in the conclusion of Paul's letter to the church, the assembly in Ephesus, which is in what is now modern-day Turkey. And so far, I'm going to give you a big flyover picture of what's been happening in the book of Ephesians. So far, Paul has done two things in this. First, to those who understand their brokenness, those who understand their sin, those who understand the war of conflict in their own heart, Paul tells the church that we have the good news of being won back into God's good favor by the work of Jesus Christ in our place. He makes this point in Ephesians 2, verses four through 10, where he says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What must we do to be saved? Nothing, 
according to Paul in this text. For Jesus has done it all. Our response is not to do, but to believe in what Jesus has done in our place. That's what we do. We claim Christ's work on our own so that his good work is applied to us. We are saved apart from works, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. But, you see what Paul did at the end there? We are saved apart from our works for good works. In other words, it's not that our good works save us, but that saved people now in the power of Jesus do good works. God has an immense purpose for your life in his salvation through Jesus Christ. And what are these good works for those saved by grace through faith from their sins? Well, this is Paul's second goal. And that is he shows those who have now been radically reconciled out of sin and darkness to God through Jesus Christ, that there's a second reconciliation that happens. And that is that to be radically reconciled to God is to also be radically reconciled to God's people through redemption. We see this in Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. And notice how Paul is pulling this community of ransomed people together. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near. Through him, we both, that is those who are far off and those who are near, those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles, through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father, or in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The radical nature of atonement radically brings us together in Jesus. We are a temple and we are becoming even more like that temple. God is creating through his people a community that lives together and shows the world what Jesus is like. And so Paul stressing how we're saved through Jesus Christ and then showing us what that saved community looks like in the church, he concludes his letter with one simple exhortation in Ephesians chapter six, verse 10, where he says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And here we see that we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Though we have been one to each other by grace, we have enduring need for strength. This assumes not your Christian beauty muscles just to look at. This assumes that there will be trial. There'll be hardship, moments of weakness, seasons of doubt, real pain and difficulty. And he launches then into the beautiful good news of what it looks like to stand firm. And he gives us this wonderful passage, which many of you heard if you attended Vacation Bible School, and that is the armor of God. And he continues with this in verse 11 through 17. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, 
having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And here is the armor of God. Here are wonderful truths that to be saved by Jesus is not to be put on the bench, but to be thrust into action, to go forward. There's no backside defenses for this. We are always moving forward in the path of grace and God has given to us exactly what we need to do so. And what are we moving forward against? Against the forces of Satan himself. Yet in this passage, we assume that God will give us what we need to prevail. That in this challenge are real difficulties, but also there's the promise of real victory. Yet we need to be careful in reading this passage that we read it carefully because we can often become, specifically if you are a new convert, if you're a new Christian, we can become uh, arrogantly optimistic about what this looks like, don't we? I remember a Tom Cruise movie that came out in the early 2000s, and in it he played a samurai, because what else would Tom Cruise do? And, and in this movie, he's spending this time training with samurais, and this, there's this battle at the end where him and all of his samurai buddies roll out onto this field in magnificent glory, and then the bad guy shows up with a Gatling gun and kills everyone. He literally brought the world's biggest gun to a knife fight, <laughs> and they were completely outmatched. There was no hope for them, in any way. And we might think that because we have these wonderful gifts that God gives us in in salvation, swords and shields and breastplate and, and and belts, you know, the wonderful thing of belts and shoes, readiness with the gospel of peace, that we can march out into the world, face these spiritual forces of Satan and experience wonderfully easy victory over sin, over doubt, that we have no need for encouragement, endurance or difficulty because we have the weapons of faith. And I want to encourage you that there will be times where you will so obey God through the power of the Holy Spirit where the forces of darkness will flee before you. Thanks be to God for those moments. But what happens when it feels like you're the one with the sword, but the devil brought the gun? What happens when it feels like all the weapons and armor we just looked at are insufficient against the pain the difficulty, the sorrow, and the hardship that you might find yourself in? What happens when you look around at the battlefield and it seems that you're the last one standing? Well, here's where Paul gives the second part of his encouragement to stand firm. Yes, we stand with the armor of God, but we also stand with the heart of prayer. Look at what he says in Ephesians 18 through 20 praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. How are we to endure? How are you, when all is said, to have stood firm? We are to have been a people of prayer. I heard one pastor say this week, commenting on this passage, 
that it is not the weapons that make the warrior, but the heart. And while the weapons sit on the outside, here we see at the heart of a Christian is a spirit of prayer, enduring, fervent, perseverant, heartfelt prayer. And today we're going to answer the question, why we pray? I hope that you prayed at some point this week. We have already prayed here at church today. There's at least five prayers I counted this morning that we have over the course of our sermon. And why, er, service, and why is it that Christian people are to be a people of prayer? And why is it that the Christian church is to be a place of prayer? Well, verse 18 in Ephesians 6 gives us four reasons for this, and we will spend our time today examining this. And this is what we're going to see is first we see that Christians pray because we have the Spirit at all times. Secondly, we pray because we have access to all kinds of prayer. Thirdly, we will see we pray because we have need for all kinds of perseverance. And lastly, we pray because we have relationships with all kinds of saints. Those are all long titles. If you're a note taker, they'll be up on the screen later. Don't panic yet. Stay with me because now we're going to begin by looking at Ephesians 6.18, just the very first part where Paul says this, praying at all times in the spirit. We pray, Christians pray, because we have the spirit at all times. Now there is an assumption here that I don't want to assume in a group like this. And that assumption is that all of us are part of the we who have the Holy Spirit. So who are those, who are we who have the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul actually tells us earlier in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. So what does it take to have the Holy Spirit? Here we see. In him, that's in Jesus, verse 12, we see that. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So who gets the Holy Spirit? It's not just those who hear. This is what we talked about last week. It requires hearing where there is no hearing of the gospel. This is why we love missions. Where the gospel cannot be preached and is not preached, salvation cannot be accomplished. And so we want all to hear the wonderful message of salvation in Jesus Christ. But it's not just hearing this message. But in believing this message of your salvation, that you are given the Holy Spirit as a seal and as a guarantee a seal and a guarantee of what? That one day we will finally and fully and unashamedly be in the immediate presence of God in glory. That one day Christ, which has called his church to live in this world for this time, will call the church out of the world and we will stand before God and all sin and all weakness and opposition will be dealt away with. The Holy Spirit here is reminding us of the fullness of our redemption. Just as my ring reminds me, the Holy Spirit reminds us. And yet it's not inanimate like my ring, reminding of the promise. It is actively reminding us. While we are not yet in the physical presence of the triune God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the believer by faith. 
And this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit reminds us that while we might not be with God as we live in this world, God is with us as we live in this world. That the glories of heaven have in part come to dwell in our hearts, reminding us that God is with us. This is great hope for those who at times in this life feel woefully and wearily alone. Prayer reminds us that we are never alone. That we pray to God the Father who has always been in heaven. That we pray to Christ the Son who was born incarnate of a virgin, but who now in resurrected glory has ascended to the right hand of God the Father back in heaven. We do not pray to a God who is merely distant. We pray to a God who in every believer dwells mightily, intimately, and with great nearness through the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, we pray at all times in this spirit. This means there is no time in which you will find yourself, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, where the Holy Spirit is not in you, crying out for God. You can find times where your cell phone doesn't get reception. You can find internet and Wi-Fi dead zones. My kids can find corners of my house where no matter how hard I yell, they cannot hear the commands to go unload the dishwasher. It's miraculous. And yet, if you've been saved by grace, there is no affliction so severe, no sin so silencing, that the Holy Spirit will not get you to God, will not bring you to the source of your needs and your wants. The Holy Spirit is in us to help us pray. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do in us? It certainly does abundant things, more things than we can spend time in one specific sermon talking about. But among them is prayer. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, verses 26 through 27, where he says this, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Man, our world does not want anyone to be seen as weak, and yet weakness is the way of the gospel. It is in our weakness that the Holy Spirit comes to help us. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit has come to help us. Specifically in this passage, to help us pray. And here's the wonderful joy of good theology on the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit lives in you, and yet the Holy Spirit is also God. So it knows the mind of the Godhead because it is a member of the Godhead, and yet it knows the stupid things in our heads because it's dwelling in us. It knows our own weaknesses, our own warts, our own sins, and our own insufficiencies. And what it seeks to do is it helps you realize that. And sometimes that is painful, and sometimes that is confusing, and sometimes we don't even know what's going on. That's what Paul is saying. And yet the Holy Spirit is helping us by doing what? By taking what we know about ourselves and bringing it in prayer to the God who knows us exhaustively, intimately, and completely. Here's the wonderful thing that happens when you pray. We pray, we pray to God with the help of God for the grace of God reminded of the promise of God. Isn't that wonderful? 
that every time we pray, we pray to God, with God, for the grace of God, reminded of the promise of God. There's no other communication so rich than that. And just more, to clarify, Paul isn't saying here in Ephesians 6, 8, that there's some really cool Christians and they get to pray in the Spirit and the rest of you just get to pray. This isn't a legalistic command for zeal, where if you can pray long enough, if you could use holy words enough, if you can you know, post your prayer time enough, then all of a sudden you are now praying in the spirit with miraculous power. To pray as a Christian is to pray in the spirit. Isn't that wonderful? Where instead of saying you're never gonna make it, the gospel comes and says, you've made it, you're here. You've got the good stuff. The Holy Spirit is in you as God, crying out for you to pray. It is, as Paul says in Romans, the one inside of us that calls Abba, Father, in times where all we want to do is run away from the sin we're encountering. In times where all we want to do is run to relief in the world, the Holy Spirit is in us crying, Abba, Father, drawing us to God, reminding us of his promises, saying, hey, the only reason I'm in here is because Jesus has saved your soul and that God will not let go of you. So bring it all to him. Tell him about all of it in full. If you're here today and you're uncertain of your relationship to Jesus, and yet you're beginning to find yourself shouting prayers into the darkness, <laughs> vocalizing hurts, wants, needs to God in ways you never thought you would or even uncertain of in that moment, I want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit might be working in you, giving you eyes to see the beauty of this God. And yet, the Holy Spirit wants to call you even more. He wants to call you from uh, faith in prayer to faith in Jesus, to showing you there's something beyond merely acknowledging that God exists and he's bigger than you, but of coming to Jesus who died for your sins, who wins you to God, and to be one to him is to have his audience forever and always because he has won you so mightily to the Father. Come further into full faith and submission to Jesus. Ask any Christian that's in here. We know that in God's good, kind providence, there are times where he doesn't answer our prayers. And yet what we see in scripture is that God is eager to answer prayers for salvation. There is nothing more that thrills the heart of the father than to respond to requests of repentance and for faith. And so that means that if you are one who doesn't know what to say, but you go to God and you say something like this, like, God, I know I don't have what it takes, but I know Jesus does. I know the hurt, I know the harm, I know the filth, I know the weakness of my own heart and I hear Jesus can take that for me and die for me. That if you pray that to God, that it is not mere words spoken out into the universe, but that is the very means by which God saves your soul and wins you not to prayer, but to the God of prayer. Not to casual intimacy, but to abiding intimacy through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if that's you today, and you've been wrestling with this, I encourage you to, to offer those prayers to God, to submit yourself to his life. But then also, would you do me and ultimately you a favor? Would you talk to someone else in here before you leave? Talk to any of the people you saw on the stage. Talk to me, talk to one of the elders. It'd be great. I don't care if you know the person next to you. Talk to them. They probably know somebody who knows somebody. <laughs> 
But this is an important thing that we want you to be aware of. Any believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, and because of that, we desire to pray at all times, because at all times, in our weakness and in our seasons of success, God is with us, he hears us, he sees us, and he lives in us. We pray because we have the Spirit at all times. But secondly, we pray because we have access to all kinds of prayer. We see this in Ephesians 6, 18 again, where he says, praying in the, at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. With all prayer, all kinds of it. If you've read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian gets this kit uh, where he gets all of the, the armor of God, the sword and the shield and the breastplate, but then he gets the weapon that John Bunyan says is the weapon of all prayer. This is exactly where he gets that idea. All prayer and supplication. And there's a little bit of a distinction where it says prayer and supplication that's maybe helpful for us, but at least tells us what Paul is trying to do. That Greek word he uses for prayer is a distinctly religious word. It's talking to God. But the word he uses for supplication is kind of like a terrestrial word. It's a human word. It's the kind of thing you would do before a judge to plead your case, to make a request in a court. And the point is that Paul's giving, he's saying, pray at all times. There's all kinds of prayer. And what might that look like? That might look like going to God in the same way you go to a judge, in the same way you go to a doctor to make a plea, to make a request. And what we see here is that prayer might at times look different than prayer at other times. Sometimes there's prayers of gratitude. Sometimes there's prayers of supplication. And here we see the beauty of a varied and diverse prayer life. When we pray honestly, our prayers multiply. When we pray honestly, our prayer life looks distinct. It looks diverse. And some of us wrestle to pray because we only pray one way. And generally that one way is bathed in some sort of vague religious language. If you're like me, I sometimes feel awkward being honest with God. I wrestle with it. It's almost as if, if we let God know what's going on in our hearts, if we like let him see, the God's be like, oh man, I didn't mean to save you. Like, where's the guy who saved? We feel like Moses, when God comes to Moses, and Moses is like, oh, no, 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 you want a leader? That's Aaron. He's the good talking leader. I'm the murderer runaway with the stutter. And yet God is not worried about your weaknesses. In fact, God knows your weaknesses better than you know it. God knows your sin better than you know it. And he wants you then to be honest with everything that is in your heart when you go talk to him in prayer. In Isaiah chapter seven, God comes to Ahaz, king of Judah, He's shaking in his boots. He is wrought with anxiety and he is totally beside himself because the Assyrian empire is moving closer and closer to Judah and their swords are sharp and their horses are big. And so God comes and he says this amazing thing. He goes to Ahaz and he says, ask the Lord your God for a sign. Let it be as low as shale, that is the grave, or as high as heaven. In other words, God is saying to Ahaz, he's like, be honest with me, man. Tell me how scared you really are and I will show you that I'm bigger than all of your fears. Ask for the world and I'll give it to you. Ask for a sign and I'll show you that you don't need to be afraid. But Ahaz puts on this kind of religious hypocrisy that spoils many of our own prayer lives. He says, and this sounds really good, 
right? If you're in a prayer gathering and someone says this, you might think this is the most religious person in the room. He says, I will not ask for I'll not put the Lord to the test. Man, how holy is Ahaz? He trusts God so willingly that he's not even needing a sign from this. And yet, God knows exactly what's going on in Ahaz's heart. He knows that Ahaz is so anxious and so worried and so beside himself that all the while, while the God of the universe is talking to him, Ahaz has gone and signed this backroom deal with the nation of Egypt. And so Ahaz knows he's hedged his bets. You see, prayerlessness doesn't stem from a lack of our need, but a misplacement of our needs. None of us refuse to pray because we don't have needs. We all have needs. But most of us refuse to pray because we don't honestly bring our needs to God and we're too quick to find backroom deals with Egypt or with our spouses or with our pocketbook or with our checkbook or all those things to ask the world to meet needs that only God can do. But God says, he's like, get out of here, Ahaz. (laughs) He's like, you sound all pious, but I know what's in your heart. I know you fear these two countries. You know, I'm gonna give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Does that sound important to you guys? And he says, by the time that child is able to walk and to know good and evil, these two kings you fear will be totally destroyed. These big nations you fear don't stand a chance. Stand firm, Ahaz, believe in me. Don't act like you're not scared. But come to me and know I'm big enough for it. Come to me and trust me in the midst of it. One thing the Holy Spirit does is it helps us be honest with God. It shows us our faults and our weaknesses and our wounds so that we can do two things in the moment. First, the Holy Spirit comes and it reaffirms the Lord's love for you. Isn't that great? Where the Holy Spirit not only convicts you of sin, but in the midst of that conviction, it reminds you that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for it. It stands there with you. It's like, yeah, it's bad, isn't it? That's really bad. But Jesus died for you. God is pleased with you for you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus himself. But then secondly, he says, now take all of that. Take all that emotion and bring it to God. Bring it in all of your raw thoughts. Bring it with all of your raw emotions. And when we are honest, we find all prayer to be easy. We begin to pray with great ease because we're aware of the multitude of emotions and fears and desires we have in our own hearts. We see all kinds of prayer in the New Testament. Go through Paul's letters and note what he prays for and how he prays for it. That's a guy who knew the power of all prayer and all supplication. When we have the spirit of God inside of us, we can pray, Paul says in the first part of verse 18, at all times. That means you can pray that flare prayer on your way into class that you didn't study for. You can pray on the, in the car, dropping your kids off at school. You can set aside time to pray and say, this is my time to commune with God. You can set aside Sundays and the times we pray here to pray, and it could be spirit-filled, all kinds of prayer. We could pray in different ways. We could pray prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of gratitude, prayers of confession and repentance, prayers of requests and appeals, prayers of unknown frustrations and things we can't put quite put our finger on, we can take all of that and go to God and say, help me with this. See how beautiful God is in your life and let that worship carry you to adoration. Now I want you to do some homework this week. 
And I don't know what this looks like for you if you're like a journaler or you just are a good thinker. I want you to pray for a couple days and then I want to ask yourself the question of what would change if God answered all of your prayers? What would be different? Where would people be more Christ-like? Where would God be more glorified? Where would the gospel be more proclaimed? I was convicted of this a couple years ago with what I call transition prayers. They're prayers that come specifically at dinner and at bedtime with my kids. Where when I say amen, I wanna eat. And when I say amen, I want you to go to sleep. That's the purpose of prayer. It's to say, dad's done, we're moving on. But how many of our prayers at dinner time or our prayers at bedtime, if answered, wouldn't accomplish anything that a couple handfuls of salt and some Benadryl wouldn't also help with? (laughs) That the food tastes good and our kids sleep well. That's great. Happy and full kids is like the, the wonderful double threat of the parenting life. But don't you think God wants more from us in terms of our prayers? with all kinds of prayer to be thoughtful of what it is we're praying for. A life of all prayer should cause our prayers to get at what God wants. Are we thinking of our prayers and praying not only as as if they're transitions, but praying that the God who tells us to pray might actually want to answer those prayers we're praying? And that we've constantly asked for small trifles when God is withholding for us the wonderful outworking of grace in our life. But this is hard. What might this look like? And full disclosure, like I'm trying to do this with our kids and there are t- we actually invite, we have people without kids over to our house. We have them participate in bedtime because this is one place where I want people to see me wrestling with this. And there are times where I'm praying and I'm just quiet for a little bit because I'm like, I don't know what to pray for besides just utter like rote words. And I'm saying, it's okay. I want my kids to see that I'm thinking of them that I don't know what to pray for, and that's on me. (laughs) That I want to be a better dad, that I want you to know the love of Jesus more deeply, that I want you to live your life for his glory, that I want your strength to be used in service of others, that I want your mind to be used for the building of the kingdom. And part of the reason why we wrestle to pray is because we don't know what to pray for. And this is where Paul, in these last two points, wants to come and help us. And namely, we see we should be praying, and we need to pray, because we have all kinds of need for perseverance. Look at Ephesians 6, 18 again. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. We pray because God is sovereign, this world is sinful, and we need endurance. Which shows you the source of all of our endurance is the power of God. We need God and the strength of his might if we are going to endure. Prayer is first and foremost an admission of God's sovereignty. We are praying to God, and whether you realize it or not, it is an admission that he is the one who knows everything. He is the one capable of everything, and we are not. Your prayer life is the greatest telltale sign of your theology. People with a big God have big prayers. People with a little God have little prayers. And here's why we need to be a prayerful people. Because the opposition is real. 
Look back at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need a big God, for we have a big problem. Life is hard. Life's hard enough if all we had are stubbed toes and strained relationships, let alone the devil coming at us against, did you hear, feel that in the text? Against and against and against and against. Peter says, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Ought we to be a people looking for a God to deliver? We don't wage war on the devil out of arrogance, We wage war on the devil because we are daily assaulted by him and if left alone, we will not endure. There will be times in your life where God wants to humble you so much so that all you have left is the weapon of all prayer. And in those moments, God is sufficient. I just say my life the last nine months has been a life where God has revealed that to me. I was not born a prayer warrior. I just wasn't. But God has so humbled me that when people say they're praying for me, it's not this trite, emotional, spiritual butt slap. But it's like, that's what I need. I have nothing but the Lord. In those moments, what we need is not simply prayer, but perseverant prayer. There are times when prayer is joyful and easy, and there are times when prayer is pressed and painful, but in those moments where all you have left is God, you realize that all we need is God. Following Jesus is very hard, and without the help of prayer, we neglect ourselves of not only a tool to help, but of a grace to comfort. And so Paul says to you, don't just pray with perseverance, but stay alert. Be perseverant to persevere. Be constantly looking, constantly falling to your knees, constantly in prayer to the God who is greater than all of this. There's this beautiful scene in Revelation that already weirded out most of you, but there's this beautiful scene in Revelation chapter five where Jesus is presented as the only one worthy to open the scroll that will indicate the final movement of God's redemptive program. Jesus is the answer to everything the world is waiting for. But in that moment, we read this small detail. Revelation 5, verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll, that's Jesus taking the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In heaven, stored up, answered by the victorious lion, lamb, Jesus Christ, are the prayers of the saints. Here we see, are you one who's ever felt like God hasn't answered? Are you one who hasn't persevered because it seems the Lord doesn't care? But here at the feet of the king who will come back again, God has heard, God has kept every prayer of his saints. And we, because we're innate legalists, we think that he's kept the words. (laughs) But it doesn't say he's kept the words of all the prayers. 
as if we're justified by our many words and our religious language. He's kept the prayers, the instances, the occasions, those moments where the glory of God stirs you to pray in adoration or the moments where the sufferings of this life stir you to pray in desperation. We just finished a year. We live in a world that quantifies everything. You probably got Spotify telling you, here's the top artists you listened to this last year. Your fitness app said, here's how many steps you've taken. Here's how many miles you've run. But if at the end of the year, someone took a bowl full of your prayers and poured it out before you, what would its effect be on you? Would you say yes and amen? Or would you say, that's it? That's all the times I was so overwhelmed with God's beauty that I thanked him? That's all the times where in my loneliness I cried out for communion with him? That's all the times in my weakness where I realized my need for him. We all need help in our prayers. And in fact, it's Jesus' disciples who see Jesus pray and they realize his prayer is different and they say, teach us to pray like you. None of us, I've never met someone who says my prayer life is wonderfully sufficient and I don't need to pray anymore. In fact, when I was in seminary, the number one thing guys said they were working on is their prayer life. We need help. Jesus is the answer. But there's three wonderful things I want to touch on quickly where God helps us with perseverant prayer. First, if you're one who needs help with your prayer life, the Lord teaches us how to pray. The disciples don't go to Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. He's like, I figured it out. Everyone's got their own. You'll do great. He teaches them. And more than that, the Holy Spirit yearns in us to pray. And more than that, God has given us the Bible, which records hundreds of prayers that we could look at and say, how can this prayer shape my prayer life? What are they praying for? And how can I pray for that as well? If you're someone who feels weakness in prayer, take heart for God has given you everything you need in your conversion to grow in your prayer life. You will not pray yourself so big that you see God as lacking, but you always want to do it more and more. Secondly, the church reminds us to pray. This is why we pray publicly and often on Sunday mornings and for different reasons. We have five prayers that happen every Sunday. We pray at the beginning to consecrate this time to the Lord. We pray at the end to commission us to service for the rest of the week that though having come in being filled by fellowship in the Holy Spirit, we pour ourselves out in mission and evangelism. We pray before the sermon to give us ears to hear. We pray after the sermon for a sober response. And we have this big prayer in the middle called the pastoral prayer. And all of these prayers are meant to do two things in our gathering. One, it's to show us the power of all prayer. There are long prayers, there are short prayers, there are written prayers, there are extemporaneous prayers, there are joyful prayers, there are somber prayers. But secondly, it calls us to participate in prayer. And this is where I want to draw your guys' attention specifically to the pastoral prayer portion as what happens is either a resident or an elder or a staff person has spent time that week doing the work of considering the needs of our church and then modeling what it looks like to pray for those, to thank God for his bounty and to seek God's providence in our need. And for many of us, how, for how many of us is that time of pastoral prayer the longest time of prayer we have all week? 
It's not meant to shame you, but it's meant to say, don't waste it. Pray with them. There's this word, and so it's a really, it's, 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 uh, it's rare to find, it's, it's deep in ancient languages, but I want to teach it to you. And it, it's, it's tough to say, it's called amen. And it means, let it be so. That's not you hanging up on God. It's not this magic word that says over and out. It means that you agree with what was said. And so as we are praying, I know we're a Baptist church, and I know this gets weird for us, but if, if you hear something, you're like, man, I want to pray for that too, and that is so good, it's okay to think and to maybe even say, amen. When we conclude in prayer, and you say, amen, it says, dear Lord, answer those prayers. You are as glorious as they said and as generous as we need. Let it be so. Kids that are in here, during the pastoral prayer, I don't know what you do. We didn't have pastoral prayers when I was a kid. I imagine your brain goes everywhere and your body just wants to go. Like, no one's looking. Let's go. This is the time we're going to do the stuff. But I want to encourage you to sit, to listen to figure out what it's like to be quiet before God and to realize that God wants to hear from you. Don't waste these opportunities. And lastly, not only does the church remind us as we gather to pray, but the church requires us to pray. And this is what leads into the last point this morning in verses 18 through 19. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says we should pray in all seasons, but how many of you know that it's in seasons of weakness that we're more apt to pray? It's in seasons where God has kindly stripped away our other false idols and closed the door to the nation of Egypt that we say, all right, I gotta go somewhere else with this. And it's in seasons of joy and ease where we sometimes struggle to gain footing for prayer. And here's a wonderful goodness that God has given us the church. Because when your life is great and you're reminded to pray, you come in and you see your wreck of a pastor, Tyler, you say, I got, I got, I got needs prayer. See, the role of the church is to come in where each of us leave with something to do, with someone to pray for. My kids often in the summer, they come to me and they say this thing where they say, we're bored. And I've started, every time they're saying they're bored, I'm like, I'll give you something to do. Here's a task, go do it. If we wrestle with prayer, the church is a wonderful place where it says, here's some prayer you could do. Here are some needs you can meet. Here are some hearts that need encouraged. Here's in light of James, some wounds, some physical illnesses that need to be brought to the Lord. Here's some sin that God's working on in this person's heart that you could pray for. And this is the last point. I skipped the point. This is what it is. We pray because we have, all ki- we have relationships with all kinds of saints. It's by knowing the body of Christ that we are drawn into a relationship of prayer. In fact, it's almost as if Paul wants this perseverant prayer to be perseverant prayer for the saints. We have this thing we say in church, and it goes like this. 
I'll pray for you. And it's the Christian equivalent of the parenting tactic that says maybe later, <laughs> right? It's like, we're, we'll just put a pin in that and I'm gonna go get my coffee and I'll pray for that. But what if we did something novel? What if we said that more and actually prayed for people? What if we actually meant it, not as a transition away from a relationship, but to say, I wanna help you? And what if we actually did this? What if in this gathering, you actually prayed for that individual here before you left. You didn't leave it to chance or to the reminder to come on your phone, but you set your person to the task of prayer. Paul assumes the church needs this mercy. It's in this mercy, you're not only spurred to pray, but the other person is benefited from it. By God's grace, we're a church community that's growing in hospitality, it's growing in doctrine, it's growing in Bible reading, but may we be a community that's growing in prayer for one another. So we could do this in two ways. First, you can ask people how you could pray for them. Right here at church. And this kind of prayerfulness shouldn't be seen as odd. It should be seen as normal. This is what we do. It's what us as elders should do. In Acts 7, the elders were set apart for the ministry of the word and for prayer. Your elders pray for you. Every staff meeting, every elder meeting, for however many people are there, we take out our membership booklet. And we begin to pray through our membership role because the ministry of prayer is the ministry of the church. But secondly, when someone asks you how they can pray for you, answer honestly. It's okay to say you're busy and you need prayer, but why is busyness bad for you? Maybe your Bible reading and your prayer is struggling. Maybe you're angry with your kids or your roommates. Tell them that. Ask for help in that. Here's a wonderful resource of fellow believers using all prayer as an appeal to the sovereign king who cares for you. Use this tool and be comforted. Seek to pray for others. And as we practice the power of all prayer, we find something incredible inevitably happens. The gospel goes forward. Look at how he concludes in verse 18 and 20. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance, making all supplication for all the saints, that's verse 18, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. As we commit ourselves to praying for each other, the gospel inevitably goes forward because we are encouraged by the church. We will never be an evangelistic church without being a prayerful church. In 2 Corinthians, Paul thanks the church for praying for him in his affliction because as a result, Paul was encouraged and as a result, the gospel went forward to people who otherwise wouldn't have heard. And look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 11, that we should take away from this. He says, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Brothers and sisters, we got to pray this morning for the church in Canada that is wrestling under ordinances that restrict what Bible makes clear. Today, when we prayed, I hope you prayed with me, they know that they don't stand alone. 
They know that by the help of many prayers, they are supported. Where you'll notice this, Paul says he ought to speak this way. And what does he assume? If he ought to speak the gospel, the church ought to be a praying church. Are you praying for the gospel message? Are you praying for your neighbor? Are you praying that God might so empower believers to loose our mouths with the boldness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you praying that God shows himself as big? We pray together because we have all the spirit at all the times, in all of our prayers, with all perseverance for all of the saints because we want the gospel to go out to all of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we pray together right now, we pray in the spirit. We ask that you make us a prayerful people, individually and corporately. We ask that you give us eyes to see the needs of others so we might lift them up in prayer to you. We ask you ask for eyes to see the glory of God so that in moments where our needs are not made clear, your glory is and we might express to you in prayerful thanksgiving, gratitude. Lord, today, as there are a couple more prayers yet to come, that the worship we sing together shapes the needs we bring to you together. And this might be enduring throughout the week so that we might see and know and rejoice in a God who's big enough for everything we can pray. In your name, all God's people said, amen.